For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's a great time to just pause the episode and hit that little subscribe button. We're just a couple downloads away from 2000 on the podcast, which I'm so excited about because uh, we've only been doing this a couple of months and we spend absolutely nothing on marketing. So speaking of marketing, word of mouth is hands down the best marketing in the world. And when you spend nothing on marketing, it is the only marketing at your disposal. So we love for you to share the podcast. Um, I realize we're not Joe Rogan. We're not in the dark. But we think these issues are so important and touch the lives of so many people that we can ask people to spend 30 minutes every two weeks to learn and engage. That's actually why we went from going every week to now every two weeks. Because I just kind of thought through how much time can you ask people to spend on something they may not feel like is eminently important to their life. And it's not entertainment driven, although we try to um, have great stories as part of it, too. And so we ended up going to every two weeks to try to give it um, the the right place in people's podcast list that we think it's important enough to spend 15 minutes a week um, learning about these things and engaging with them. Um, so your invitation to other people is how we journey with more people on these issues. I just finished the new book, Addiction Nation, by Timothy King. The subtitle of it is What the Opioid Crisis Reveals About Us, and I loved it. I highly encourage everyone um, to read it. I read other books. I generally don't talk about them because it may not be because they're bad. They just I don't find them to be um, particularly valuable to the solutions for what we're facing today. Um, a lot of them are based on kind of more how we got here. Um, but we are really, uh, within it for good, looking at how can we get out of uh, where we are? How can we understand what got us here? But we want to understand that so we can get out of it. Um, so if you've listened to the show or follow me on Facebook, you'll know that my absolute favorite book on the drug war and the hope for ending it is Chasing the Screen by Johan Hari. It just chronicles the drug war um, and some options for reform. And I often think about my work in this space as being informed um, first by the Bible as a Christian and then by the wealth of research in that book second. As I better understood legalization, I feel confident that um, the Christian beliefs that I already held are completely compatible with it. But this new book, Addiction Nation, I think will find a place of importance in my work that's up there with Chasing the Screen, which for me is a high compliment because uh, we use that book in all kinds of ways with um, End It For Good and have used it in discussions and we send it out to people. And um, So these books are really different books. Um, I don't agree with everything necessarily in either of them, but Addiction Nation does what Chasing the Scream doesn't, which is it speaks also to Christians and it also opens a space to consider the nuances of addiction, of morality, of the drug war in light of scripture, as well as a lot of other um, research. And so uh, Tim has done what is so challenging to do, which is dig into the nuances of why we approach drugs and addiction the way that we do and how we bring more healing to a broken world. And that is the genius of this book, not going to one extreme, not saying it's all because of this and this is the only way out of it, but holding all of these things in tension to say, we need to sit with the complexity and really try to understand what got us here so we can understand how we can move forward towards more healing. 
So our guest for the next two episodes is the author of Addiction Nation, uh, Timothy King. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for all the work that you're doing with End It For Good. Thanks. So Tim is a writer, a nonprofit professional. He's the owner of Vagabond Consulting. He's worked as a community organizer in Chicago, a chief strategy officer with Sojourners, and currently serves as a consultant for the Center for Action and Contemplation. His work has been published in Christianity Today, which is actually where I was first introduced to it a couple of years ago. Um, Also in Sojourners and other venues, he's been interviewed by a host of news outlets. Uh, He's a graduate of North Park University with degrees in theology and philosophy. You see um, that coming through in the Addiction Nation work of very concrete and practical things, as well as he does a great job of pulling out and going, what are the thought processes? What are the parts of the deeply human parts of who we are that are also part of this crisis that we find ourselves in? Um, And Tim and his wife live in New Hampshire. So, Tim, in the next episode, we're going to delve more deeply into addiction specifically and your personal journey through addiction and recovery. But give us a little introduction to yourself. How'd you come to write this book? Well, I had been living and working in Washington, D.C., and I got sick. So the basics of my story is I had a mild case of pancreatitis. The doctors weren't sure I was 25 at the time why a 25-year-old would have pancreatitis. So they did a few tests, and one of those tests, it was supposed to be routine, supposed to be in and out in a day, but it went wrong. And I ended up um, in the ICU for a few weeks. The doctors thought that it was about a 50-50 shot, whether I would live or die, and ended up in the hospital for months with complication after complication. And while I was in the hospital, it was clear to me that my life was in danger, and it was clear that I was facing these serious medical issues But that entire time, I was on heavy doses of narcotics. Um, I was on Dilaudid and fentanyl. And I didn't realize I was discharged, was home, was slowly recovering, that I was then facing a new potential complication. Certainly not inevitable, but far too common. And that was opioid addiction. And so that was, for me, my introduction to addiction in a whole new personal and deep way, but it was something I didn't talk about at first. I didn't discuss it with anyone. I was relatively lucky. It was not a dramatic addiction experience. It was a situation where things went right. The kind of support that I got, the training my doctors had, meant that I didn't have a deep spiral. I didn't hit rock bottom, but I was able to enter into recovery over the course of those next five, six months after after getting out of the hospital. Um, and so I didn't want to talk about it. It was something that I kind of held some shame around and some inability to discuss with other people. And that was until I moved back to my home state of New Hampshire. And New Hampshire is one of the highest opioid overdoses, um, overdoses of, from other substances as well, um, in the country. And when I started to see and hear about neighbors um, overdosing, and suddenly I saw that word fentanyl pop up again. I hadn't heard that word since I had been in the hospital. And suddenly it was in the news all the time. I, I kept hearing those stories and knowing that that could have been me. And that was when I felt compelled to share my own story to try to help people have a different way of understanding addiction and a different way of understanding um, the public policy implications of of our current drug war and how that often makes things worse when we, I think most people are behind the drug war because they think 
they, they think it makes things better. Mm-hmm. They want yeah. to see a better country. They want to see people not overdosing. They want to see a way out of addiction. But the evidence is, anyone who's been listening to your podcast for a while, I'm sure, knows that the evidence is clear that it's actually contributing as opposed to making things better. So I really want to zero in on that kind of that, um, how we think about drug policy, and particularly as a Christian. So I'm in Mississippi, which is um, still predominantly Christian, heavily Christian culture influence, probably very different from um, New Hampshire. But the the hump to get over for people um, coming from a Christian perspective of thinking, how can I possibly support ending the drug war? Um, that is a, has a long history of being that way. Uh, and I'd love to kind of address kind of how you as a Christian think about those kind of changes to drug policy. So first, let's talk about the drugs themselves. So we've got this long history of drugs that come in and out of being kind of labeled as the devil drug or this evil drug. Are there some drugs that we could say that about? So I don't think so. And this is one of those issues that when you dive into it theologically, um, the church has been talking about for a long time. So to go way back, you have St. Augustine, who was one of the early theologians of the church, and there was this big debate. Is evil a substance? Is evil an actual thing? And there was a debate within the church, and you even saw this even earlier with Paul and what they called the Council of Jerusalem, one of the first big discussions of, is eating pork, right? Is pork in and of itself evil? Are all of these different foods that had been restricted within the Old Testament actually evil and wrong so that no Christian could consume them and be a good Christian? Well, in that council, um, we have Peter who had a vision. God showed him a a blanket coming down with all of these other um, things that had been declared unclean, and he said, no, I can't eat those. They're unclean. When God said, don't call anything unclean that God has made clean. And then Augustine, he's in this big debate where once again, are there, is the substance of the world evil? And Augustine came out and the church decided that evil isn't actually a substance. It isn't a thing. What we call evil, what we call wrong, what we call sin is actually when things get disordered. So God made everything. And in Genesis, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. Over and over, God said, These, what I've created is good. And when we see sin enter, it's a, mis, it's a misappropriation of the relationship. It's a disordering of the relationship. And so that's where you can see in my own story, I needed Dilaudid. I needed fentanyl. The doctors actually said that I might have died if I didn't have that kind of pain management because I was in acute respiratory distress. My organs were shutting down. My body was in so much stress that I could have died without those drugs. And at the same time, just because they are good in one circumstance and they were life-saving medicine for me, that also means that we need to be cautious because our relationships with those substances can be disordered. And that's where the bad enters in. And if we think of these, any of those substances as evil in and of themselves, I think we're actually participating in a very old belief system that's outside of Christianity. And so our Christian faith leads us to say all of these things are good, but that doesn't mean we can't, we, we shouldn't be cautious. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be worried and make sure that it's in the right circumstances and in the right relationship with them. So a very common 
objection to ending the drug war is that you know people who break the law need punishment and punishment is the only way that a lot of people will stop doing the things that we don't want them doing is punitive punishment like we've enacted through the drug war uh, a helpful way to approach drug use in your research so and this again growing up in a christian home you know there's just all of those moments where you know you've done something wrong and you feel that shame, right? And growing up, I remember those feelings. I remember those, those moments. And, you know, the first thing you, I, I would want to do is beat myself up about something that I had done wrong. And one of the amazing things is that what we see in Scripture, what we see um, revealed in Christ, is that the most transformative power in the world is not punishment, it's not violence, it's grace. What we see in, in, in the life and death of Jesus is an overcoming of that belief. And we see time and time again, Jesus talking about, he didn't just come to, um, he didn't come to, he came to fulfill the law, right? That there is something more and there's a deeper reality than law. And I think people get nervous, right, because they do see the destruction that some drugs and some addictions can cause, mm -hmm. right? And it can be devastating. And because of that, we want to react and we want to stop it. And the first place to go, and I think the easiest place to go, and like what's first in people's minds is that punishment, is incarceration. But what I, one of the things that I believe about Christianity is it's not just true to me because I've opted into the Christian system. It's not just true because I believe it. And it's not just true for those who believe it. I think that what we see in Scripture is a revelation about what is true about the world, right? And that's where what we see within drug policy is that punishment actually often makes things worse. So there's one study of 1,200 IV drug users in Baltimore. They followed them for over a decade, and they wanted to see what was the most important factors between the people who continued using and the people who entered into recovery. And they thought they would find a whole host of lessons, but the one thing that the data was clear about is that the people who were least, who, the people who would enter into recovery were the ones who never went to prison. That was the strongest predictive factor. Because what happens, I think, when people enter into the criminal justice system is a lot of the times it's not about justice. It's not about restoring what has been wrong. It ends up being just about punishment. It's just about the punishment, and it doesn't fulfill the purpose. And this is where Jesus talks a lot about laws. When, he gets, when he's criticized for you know, picking wheat on the Sabbath, the Pharisees want to say, no, you're, you're doing it wrong, and Jesus brings them back. What's the purpose of the law? God did not make man for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for the man. And that's where we need to look at our criminal justice system. We need to look at the laws and say, what's the purpose here? The purpose is supposed to be restoration. The purpose is supposed to be people coming back and having fulfilled lives and flourishing lives. The purpose is to have life after addiction. But right now what we're doing is we're just punishing. So our laws aren't getting to the goal of human flourishing they are continuing to hurt people's lives. And so once someone gets out of prison, it's harder for them to get a job. And when they don't have a job, they're going to go back to the things that they went to before. And that's where I think we need to flip this model on its head and get back to what's the purpose, not how do we just punish. 
this is what a lot of people say. They say, well, you know, they broke the law, and that's the consequence. And there you go. That's the end. Um, and what you're saying is kind of what we, we try to say, too, is, you know, if we can take one step back and say, why does that law there? And if it isn't helping us, uh, can we be humble enough to admit that that law isn't right? It's not doing what we think it should do or we wanted it to do. And can we have the humility to say, okay, you know, we can change that. So something that I thought about a lot recently is um, for a lot of people here, I feel like they can, a lot of them can get to the point of saying, okay, I think I agree with you ideologically, um, but I don't ever want to actually say so publicly. I don't want to put my name on anything. I just, I would, I think it should happen, but I don't want to be involved in the drug war ending. <laughs> this is a feeling I get from a lot of people. Um, so how would you approach that? What would be, uh, you've written a book that is, um, it's not really about the drug war ending, but you mention it regularly um, in there. How, how coming from that, that perspective of how we think about this issue as Christians and the responsibility we have, what would you say? For, for people that are that are wanting to see it end but feel like it is not something they want to participate in ending. Um, and that, you know, for me, this was not a foregone conclusion for me going into writing this book, right? I had a general sense that the drug war um, wasted resources, right? It costs twenty four dollars to $30,000 to lock someone up in prison, and, you know, if we look at medically assisted treatment, you can provide medically assisted treatment for someone along with therapy for like five or six thousand dollars a year. Like I had a general sense that we there were some problems with the drug war. But when I went into writing the book, my primary mode was like, let's dial it back a little. Right. Let's let's make it, you know, maybe soften some rough edges. Mm-hmm. And it was through my research that I kept like the more I read the more I realized it, you know, it was, we need an entire paradigm shift. And this has happened before in our world. And one person who I think about with this is William Wilberforce. And he was an evangelical Christian in the United Kingdom. A lot of people might have seen uh, the movie about his life and work, Amazing Grace, and read the book. So a beautiful testament to the passion of someone who's had their life changed by Christ, and he quit drinking, he quit gambling, and he led the fight to end slavery, the slave trade, in Great Britain, and it took him decades. He helped introduce legislation, I think it was nearly 20 times, and it kept failing, and it kept failing until towards the end of his life, it finally passed. And Christians have been on the forefront before of speaking out with bravery and speaking out with conviction because they know that there is a truth there that they can be confident in. And this is part of that, that's how faith motivates us. We, we know that if we are faithful, we might not see all those changes immediately, but we know that we are promised that that is worth doing anyways and that there is that the parts that are beyond our power, that we have a God who is on our side. And that was something, that kind of dramatic shift where before Christians couldn't, well, a lot of Christians couldn't imagine a world without slavery. And now we're at the place where we can't imagine ever going back. And 
that's where William Wilberforce is such an inspiration for me, but he's an inspiration for another reason. He also struggled with a nearly 30-year-long addiction to opium. He had been prescribed for um, what was likely an ulcerative colitis, and at some point it, his dosage continued to increase, and it was described um, by many as a near-constant heavy use of opium. And so it's also an inspiration for what people who are in the midst of addiction can still accomplish and can still do. And it's also an example of, would our world actually have been a better place if William Wilberforce had been locked up and thrown in prison? Could he have accomplished what he accomplished if, we had the, if there was a drug war going on back then? And I don't think so. And that's why he's an inspiration to me, because he helped change a paradigm for a world, and he also did it while in the midst of struggling with addiction. Hmm. Yeah. His story you wrote about recently in the Wall Street Journal, which is actually how I I realized after I read that story that it was your story that I had read in Christianity Today a couple of years ago <laughs> that I had continued to be um, thinking about. We're going to talk in the next episode about how your doctor approached your addiction so differently from um, how a lot of people find their addictions um, approached. And that was really a, a pathway towards um, recovery for you. Talk a little bit about one of the most interesting things I found in your book was you address something that has been in the back of my mind um, since I began working on this, which is how do we not do it again? Because if you look back through history, and I could just see this in a short history of the United States, it seems there is something, um, you know, we, we go through a period where there is a group of people um, who suffers greatly uh, as we, you know, punish them or oppress them, keep them out of, um, you know, regular uh, free life with the rest of society. Uh, and we end that and then we recreate it in a new way. And then we end that and then we recreate it in a new way. And then it seems to be kind of through human history, there's a lot of this, um, you know, recreation of a system that um, takes somebody, some group of people, <laughs> and makes them the outsider, the ones who are punished, the ones who are um, underneath. And so I've wondered this a lot, and I've kept, as I've been thinking, you know, I want to dedicate part of my life to ending the drug war. I've also been thinking, but I also want to be thinking through how, at the same time, to change the drivers of why we do this. Why do we respond in these kinds of ways so that when we end the drug war, we don't have five years later some new evolution of what is, it's not called the drug war, it'll be something else, um, that also does the same thing, takes a vulnerable group of people and, you know, casts them out, puts them under, makes them the, you know, recipient of um, kind of the, the blame of our, you know, whatever it is. What What's going on there? You had several chapters on that. I'm still like ruminating over the content of those. What do you think is happening? So this again is going back to, I think we find answers in scripture for these kinds of dynamics within societies. So there was a theologian and historian, Rene Girard, who identified that kind of pattern and he called and he called his writing about that scapegoat theory. So we've often heard that term scapegoat, and it actually comes. There's the Jewish um, festival and the Day of Atonement, right? Where this is you're supposed to be um, getting right with God and with others. And there was this ceremony 
where the priest would take one goat and it would be sacrificed. And then another goat um, would be, there was the symbolic placing of all of the sins of the people onto the goat, and then they'd send it out into the wilderness. And so Girard noticed that this was actually kind of an innovation. So most societies at some point have had some sort of human or animal sacrifice as a part of their religious system. And he thinks that this started because you'd have conflict within a society, you'd pick, and then as that conflict grows, you'd, the, everyone would pick kind of the person who maybe they were at the center of it, maybe they weren't, and they would end up killing that person for the conflict that arose within the society. And that then temporarily relieves the tension, but doesn't actually solve the problem. And so what we see within the Jewish community is that instead of of continuing to blame a person, they actually create the ritual of saying, let's put all these sins, let's put all of these things that have been done wrong onto a goat and send it out to the wilderness so that we can acknowledge what has gone wrong and also not continue to simply blame one another. Because one of the things that this acknowledges is that all have sinned, right? That inside all of us are shortcomings. Inside all of us are ways that we are still trying to become who we are intended to be. And what happens when we create scapegoats is that we draw strict lines where the good and the bad aren't, um, are between different people. When what the Bible actually teaches is that there is the good and the bad inside all of us. And What happens with Jesus then is that Gerard says Jesus then is the ultimate scapegoat because Jesus is the innocent one. Jesus was the one who took on all of our sins for all time so that we don't need to keep having these sacrifices. We don't need to keep having these rituals. And so that's a transformative idea. And again, I don't believe that that's true just for people who go to church. I believe that's true about how society actually functions. And so this is where today we see that time and time again within our drug wars. Back in the 1870s and 1880s, with the rise of morphine, we blamed Chinese immigrants. And it was actually 1871, there was one of the deadliest lynchings in American history against Chinese immigrants. Over It was between 17 and 20 Chinese immigrants were shot or hung in one day. And the primary reason that people were scapegoating Chinese immigrants was because they said it was the, their smoking opium that was destroying the moral character of the country. And so instead of looking at what's happened with the entire country, it was finding a group of people And we saw that again um, in the 1980s with the rise of crack cocaine. This had nothing to do with the actual usage of cocaine in the United States. The actual usage of cocaine in the United States um, was higher in the 1970s among white people. So it was higher among our population as a whole in the 1970s than it was in the 1980s. What happened was that more black people were using cocaine. And so that was where we created Uh, Mass incarceration in the early 1980s, we had about 50,000 people locked up for drug offenses. Today, it's half a million. And I think what happened there was people were scared about the drug. They were scared about the crime that surrounded it. And so we, instead of looking at what's going on within communities that so many people are turning to this substance, 
we blamed people themselves. And we focused entirely in on punishing people that we were, a lot of people were felt afraid of. And so we locked people up in record numbers. The United States now has the highest incarceration rate in the world. We have 25% of the world's entire prison population is here in the United States. And what happened is I think people thought, all right, it is, it is those folks, right? It is black and brown people in the cities who get addicted. And those are the people we need to be afraid of with drug addiction or drug use. And, but don't worry, us good white folks out in the suburbs, out in the rural areas, we won't get addicted like they do. Well, most people, the kind of the coverage around the crack epidemic started to decline around 1995, 1996. And in 1996 was when the FDA approved what they call the minimally addictive um, opioid, Oxycontin. We immediately started to see the rise in opioid overdoses in white communities. And now around that time, uh, white, black, and brown people were all around the same rate as far as possibility for overdoses. And today, white people are significantly more likely to die from an overdose than any other group. And I think it was this false sense of security that we don't get addicted. It's other people who get addicted. It's the people that we've blamed that get addicted. They are the problem. And what I think we always see within Christianity is that deeper look. We have Paul constantly referring to himself as the chief among sinners, not because he was a terrible person all the time, but because that was what he was modeling, is that we always need to look internally. We always need to look at our own lives, our own community, and what we can do before we start blaming people, before we start blaming others or creating a, a cast of others and separating ourselves out. That was what I, one of the things I just thought was so life-giving about the book is that it's, you write it so humbly and it really invites people to lay down the blame, to lay down the shame, to lay down the scapegoating, to lay down the warring and to say, we are all broken and how can we find a way that we can together uh, create more healing in our world? Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again for having me. You can get Addiction Nation wherever you buy your books, including Amazon, where I got my copy. Thank you for joining us as we try to dig deeper so we can better understand and address how to bring more healing to our world. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.